Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. The first two minutes of this sermon are not endorsed by our church nor by me. So here it goes. I read about a frog who fell into a bucket of milk. He was stuck, and as much as he tried, he couldn't jump out. Because he was floating, he couldn't push off to get some air, and all he could do was paddle. Paddle, 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 paddle. And after paddling for a long time, he was able to churn a pad of butter. (laughs) Then he was able to spring from it and get some air and clear the wall. And he did it, and he was free. Now, this story is a great illustration of the fact that if you try hard enough, you can do whatever you want. And to make it more spiritual, I would like to share with you a passage from the Bible that says, God helps those who help themselves. So the question is, where is that in the Bible? (laughs) It's not there, all right? It's not there. By the way, we're back to affirming the message now. Uh, That is not there. But you've got to admit, you'll hear people say that, just like the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. It's this dominating ethos of the human heart that we believe somehow that we can work good on this earth. God will do his part. We'll do our part. We'll cooperate together, and voila. A lot of people think that way as well about getting into heaven. God does his part. I'll do my part, and eventually God will let me in. But this concept of God helps those who help themselves just doesn't work. Because God is holy, and we are sinful, and we don't want to be like the frog who says, I'm impressive, look at me, I can jump out of this bucket of milk. Instead, we're like, okay, I am a doomed frog left only for dissection. Have mercy on me. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And that's what we've been studying as we've been going through the book of Galatians. So if you want to go ahead and turn back to the book of Galatians, we're in chapter 3. And last week we saw a promise given to Abraham and received by faith and the promise of life given to us in Jesus Christ and received by faith. It's through faith alone we are counted righteous in God's sight and not by works. So where does the argument go from here? My brothers and sisters, we take the Bible seriously. We take all of it seriously. And because we study through books of the Bible, there will come times where we will come through passages where if we were not preaching through that book, we would never decide to preach it. You get that? And this just so happens to be one of those passages I would not, if I wasn't preaching through Galatians, I wouldn't say all of a sudden, I really want to preach that passage. 
But because we are preaching through Galatians and it has come up, we are gonna talk about it and the passage today is going to be a challenge. It is going to be difficult to comprehend at times and it will sound a lot more today like teaching rather than preaching, but it's okay. I think you can handle it. And if you will hold on until the very end, I guarantee you, you will be surprised on how this text has a lot to say to us. In fact, to keep you awake, at the very end, I'm even gonna talk about politics. I'm gonna get political, so you will wanna stay awake for that. So let's, let's stay engaged. Now, I know a lot of you are just visiting for the first time and you're wondering, what is this Galatians about? I'm gonna do my best to teach and explain. So here's the issue, all right? Here's the issue. If salvation is by faith, then why the law? It's a good question, right? If it's by faith, then why did God give the law? The Apostle Paul has some adversaries, these false teachers that are trying to deceive the Galatians to adhering to the Old Testament law in order to be righteous before God. And Paul pushes back hard. Because in the false teacher's mind, you see the law is a game changer. And it pushes out the Abrahamic promises received by faith and it puts the focus now on obeying the law to be made right with God. They would argue you start by faith and you finish by works. And Paul spends this book pushing back hard and argues that what you start with, you must continue with. Let me give you a, a golf analogy, and I, I will rarely do these, so be excited. Here's a rare golf analogy from uh, Pastor John Piper. He says this. Paul makes clear that you must putt with the same principles you use to drive. If you receive the Spirit of God through faith in Christ at the beginning, not through works of the law, then the only way to go on empowered by the Spirit is by faith, not by works of the law. So you must putt with the same principles you use to drive. If we start by faith, then we must continue by faith. And then once again, back to our question, but what about the law? When I say the law, just think about the Old Testament commands and rules, the Ten Commandments. Why? Why did those come into play? So let's go to the text and figure that out. Start with verse 15. Understanding that the law doesn't nullify the promise received by faith. So start in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The arguments from Paul's opponents is that the Abrahamic promise received by faith must be revamped because the giving of the Mosaic law now makes these blessings something you have to work for. And Paul pushes back and gives two reasons why the promise received by faith and grace still stands and is not nullified by the law. Reason number one, God's promise received by faith came first and cannot be changed. Look again in verse 15. First, he gives an example based on human relations in terms of a man-made covenant. Think about your will if you have one, a man-made human will. If you make a will, 
your relatives, though they may try, if they feel left out, they cannot come along later and make changes to your will. Amen. Amen. All right. So Paul says of such a human covenant, he says here, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So it is with the promise. Just because the law comes along later doesn't mean that it cancels out the promise. So far, so good. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. This is like a parenthetical aside comment Paul is making. Because the promise is spoken to Abraham concerning the inheritance of land and countless descendants and a worldwide blessing were directed at him and his seed, that is Christ. Notice it doesn't say seeds. It's not a plural word. It's a collective noun. And the idea is that through Jesus Christ, the promised seed, the nations of the world are blessed through faith in him, his descendants in him. Once again, the point still being, by faith is the promise received, and that cannot be altered by the law. Continue on, verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The law came many years later. That doesn't make the promise invalid. Just like no one can alter your will, so the law doesn't nullify God's promise. Abraham and his descendants, us, experience God's blessing not by works, but by faith alone, because the law does not cancel out the promise. Okay, so far so good. Let's go to the second reason on why the law doesn't nullify the promise. Verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Reason number two on why the law doesn't nullify the promise free by faith. Reason number two. God's promise received by faith is always based on grace and not works. God's promise received by faith is always based on grace and not works. If the inheritance of God's blessing of land and descendants is based on works, then it must be earned. And if it must be worked for, then the promise is no longer based on grace. Let's say I wanna give you a million dollars that I found on my property one day when I was digging. I found a, a million dollars there and I thought, I wanna give it to you. And I wanna give it to you as a gift. All you have to do is to come over to my house and receive the gift of a million dollars as a gift of grace. But let's say on your way over there, I decided to change the terms on how you would get $1 million. And those terms would now be, I will give you a million dollars if you will take care of my children, feed them, watch over them all the way until they're all in college. Still want that deal? <laughs> then I will give you a million dollars. You see, the terms would then be switched, and it is a much different deal, a very different deal. And I hope you see that salvation is either by grace or it is a blessing to be earned. It's not both. But as you're seeing, hopefully, from the word of God, 
is that God does not abandon grace in favor of works because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. God does not switch the deal. He does not say, we're going to start by grace. Oh, you don't want that? Now start working hard, and then you'll get the blessings. God does not switch the deal. Start by faith, by grace, continue by grace and faith. The question you keep coming back to, well, if the law does not cancel out the promise, then why the law? Why did God give the law? And we're still going in our text. Let's keep going. Verse 19, the question is asked, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The law had one purpose and the promise had one purpose. The promise was giving as a blessing based on justification by faith, and the law was giving, if you notice again in verse 19, the law was given, you see it there, because of transgressions. Huh. The law was giving because of sin. You could argue from a variety of other texts that the law was given to restrain sin, that God gave the law to Israel to teach them what he required of his people and to keep sin in check and to have it dealt with in the sacrificial system. Variety of passages that would lean in that direction. But in this context, Paul is going to argue not the restraining aspect of the law, but the revealing aspect of the law that the law was intended to reveal sin. You So sin has always been sin, but, but when it became known, the law that you are violating a command of God, then that incurs even, even greater amount of wrath. So let me just kind of throw the context at you and give you kind of a, a summary of the contextual details because I know this may be confusing. So let me give you some contextual details. It goes like this. God, who was accompanied by angels, as we were told in verse 19, he gave the law to a mediator, Moses, who passed it on to the people of Israel. But the law was ultimately from God alone, as God is only one, and he's the true giver of the law to Israel. And this law, once again, had a restraining and a revealing purpose to it until the climax in salvation history was revealed in Jesus Christ, the seed and the central focus of the promise. And Paul is arguing that since Jesus has shown up on the scene and fulfilled the law, then the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect, which means that these Galatians do not have to be circumcised to be saved. They do not have to keep the dietary code to be saved. They do not have to keep certain days to be saved, as that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Continue on, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law is not contrary to the promises of God, but they just have different purposes. 
The law was given to restrain and reveal sin. The law governed life in Israel, but it did not give life to Israel. The law cannot make you alive. It cannot impart life or righteousness. For years, my family had these family rules on our refrigerator. Maybe you had those when you had kids. I'm going to share a few that I remember. It went something like this. Obey the first time. Do not delay. Do not challenge. Do not complain. Do not argue. Have a joyful attitude. <laughs> and as soon as we posted the rules, the kids all of a sudden started to obey. It was amazing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you believe that? <laughs> no, that's not true. Rules cannot change the heart. I mean, it's like we post them on the fridge and the kids are like, I have so much joy in my heart right now. I cannot wait to obey you without delaying. No, that did not occur. It's not only true for our kids, but also for us. You get that rules and commands can't create obedience. They're important to have rules and commands to restrain sin, but in and of themselves, according to the word, they cannot impart life or righteousness. And so if the law can't make me alive and give me righteousness, then what can it do? Well, the law can show me and reveal to me that I'm imprisoned under sin. And I can't get free on my own. Warren Wearsby, a great pastor, said it like this. He said, the law is a mirror that helps us see our dirty faces, but you do not wash your face with a mirror. <laughs> That's good. So I gave you the context where we're at. Now let me kind of build a bridge to where we're at today. Now I'm going to build this bridge and it's going to be called uh, the theological contextual details, the theological details. So stick with me as I try to build this bridge to our lives. The law, the Ten Commandments and all that it contains is not the problem. Sin is the problem. It's almost like sin hijacks the law and leads to all types of sinning. The law, it's good, but exposes sin for what it is. It's not that sin is non-existent without the law, but the law exposes sin and even stirs it up. And so if you're looking to the law or trying to be a good person to earn your way to heaven, it won't happen. It's because the standards themselves expose your sin. There is no self-salvation. You cannot save yourself. You need the gospel of Jesus. Look more specifically as we finish up here in verses 23 and 25. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Once again, the law can't rescue us from our imprisonment and sin. It is only by faith, which is now fully revealed as faith in Christ, as the culmination of rescue for sinners. But the law played a part. You see what it says there? The law was our tutor. Now, don't think in terms of a math tutor that you hire for one hour a week to help your kids. The idea of a tutor is more like a guardian or a custodian. And in this context, to be a wealthier Roman family, 
having a servant to basically raise their kids by teaching them right from wrong and educating them about life and giving them oversight and even discipline. And the connection that Paul is making to the law is that the law had oversight over Israel to restrain sin and also to reveal sin. So you can think about the command, do not commit adultery. As that command came to Israel, it was to keep them from committing adultery, right? But it also was revealing to them that they had lust in their hearts. So you see how the law would restrain sin and reveal sin. And and the tutor of the law was to lead Israel and to lead us to Jesus, that we may be justified by faith. And now that salvation history has been reached in Christ, we are told that the tutor is no longer necessary. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't obey a variety of commands in the Bible. We do. Christians are not without law, which we would see as the law of Christ and a variety of commands in the Bible. But the commands in and of themselves, they still draw us to Jesus to see that we can't make it in life and having a right relationship with God is based on his works and not my works and is by faith alone. So even as you continue to follow Christ, you have commands and laws that you want to obey by the power of the Holy Spirit, but when you fall short, you still see that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and you still need Christ alone. So let's take this very difficult passage and we've seen the context of why the law we've built this bridge of this theological understanding to our lives and now we want to say practically what does this mean and I'm going to talk to you in three areas I want to talk to you about evangelism evangelistically I want to talk to you politically and I also want to talk to you personally As we think about what we've learned this morning evangelistically, I want you to think about a person you may interact with that you know who has the mantra that God helps those who help themselves. If you've ever interacted with such a person, let me encourage you to push a little. Back in the day when I lived in Santa Monica, California, we would do evangelism on the streets and we would run across a person who thought they were good enough to go to heaven or God helps those who help themselves. We would push a little. And the way that we would push is that we would take them through the Ten Commandments. Because if they say they're a good person, then a good person would have kept the Ten Commandments. But we know from the Bible that if you break one, you break them all. So we take the person through the Ten Commandments. So maybe that's you here this morning. You think you're good enough to go to heaven. Let me take you through a few of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever lied? Have you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, Jesus has said, have you ever lusted in your heart? You see how you, you can do this, take someone through that, and the law will reveal to you that you can't save yourself. You broke one, you've broken them all. And you need the gospel, the good news that it's not about your works, but about his works. And there's forgiveness and grace and the cross of Christ. So that's evangelistically, but let's move on to the one you're all waiting for, and that's politically. I think there's an election coming up this Tuesday. At least I've noticed those on TV throughout the nation are really ripping one another to shreds. But I want to bring up the village vote at the end of the month. You mind if I do that? And what I've been noticing uh, in reading the paper and talking to other people about this is the contentious nature 
of even within the village, I don't know about even within this church maybe, how people are ripping one another to shreds. I was reading a book this past week uh, by Jonathan Lehman. Let me put this book up for you. And it's a political book. It's called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And in this book, he takes what we just learned and applies it to how we interact with one another. So rather than dealing with one another from a position of domination and rage and ripping others to shreds, let's rethink how we interact with one another. Let me kind of give you a three-step thing he recommends. The first one is accept our condemnation. We all stand condemned before God's law, which means that I don't need to rule over you. You don't need to rule over me. I don't need to dominate you. You don't need to dominate me. You know why? Because we all deserve hell. And if I deserve hell, how dare I, how dare I get to a posture and a tone that wants to dominate you, that wants to belittle you? I deserve hell. And the second step, he says, is to seek God's forgiveness and righteousness, not from one another, but from God. That I am a sinner saved by grace. I need the righteousness of Christ, which means I don't need to oppress or dominate or belittle you or put myself above you because I am saved by grace through faith. And lastly, we need to show mercy and peace to one another. Since I am not trying to crush you, I can practice warm-heartedness, even if we disagree. I'd love for you to grab a hold of that phrase this next month of practicing warm-heartedness. How about that? In your discussions of whatever goes on here in the village, you bring to the table warm-heartedness in your interactions. For you were once a sinner condemned to hell, saved by grace through faith, and you want to interact with others through mercy and grace and warm-heartedness. And lastly, I want you to think about this teaching personally. And I'm gonna throw a question out to you from one of my favorite uh, scholars, Wayne Grudem. He asked the question, why didn't God make justification based on love or joy or contentment or humility or wisdom? Why is it faith alone the means for justification? Why faith alone? And you know what the answer is? It's apparently because faith is that one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When I come to faith in Christ, I essentially am saying, I give up. I give up relying on me. I give up trusting on me. And I put my faith in another, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for me, who obeyed the Ten Commandments and all the law in my place, who suffered in my place. I give up. And I'm wondering if you've come to a place in your life where you're ready to say, I give up. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life and you're trying to retain some semblance of control. Maybe you're thinking you're pretty good. And I'm just wondering, how's that working for you? Maybe it's time for you to say for the first time, I give up. Or maybe you're like me and you're ready to say for the thousandth time, I give up. Because we are looking to one, Jesus Christ, who literally gave up his life for me and for you. And this gift is a gift of grace. And it's not like we just start in faith and then we start paddle, 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 paddle for the rest of our life. No, we start by faith and grace and we continue by faith and grace. And that means that believer, if you're here this morning as a believer, you still have the disposition that says in your heart, 
I give up. I cannot do this. It can be for salvation. It can be for issues in your life. It can be for something you're dealing with, your health, your kids, whatever that you've been trying to paddle, 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 deal with it, make it work, make it work. Get to a point, I give up. And if you're here this morning and you're like me and you're really at a point where you need to remind yourself and almost surrender your life again, to Christ, that's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna do an altar call while you come all kneel downhill and surrender and give up at one time because I think all of us need to give up again this morning and there'll be no room for all of us. So where you're at right now, we're gonna go to a time of prayer where we're surrendering, giving up again. It's a daily giving up to Christ and looking to him. And there may be some things that you need to Vocalize in your head and in your heart that you're handing back over once again. Be it salvation, sanctification, whatever. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.